Welcome to Stories. I'm your host, Sean Ketchum. In this season, we're exploring entrepreneurship in Nashville. In each episode, I speak with a different founder to uncover their story and how that led to them starting their company. And today's guest is Marcus Cobb. Marcus is the co-founder and CEO of Jamber, whose software helps record labels streamline their payment processes. In the interview, Marcus details his entrepreneurial journey, including what he learned from his first exit and how he landed in Nashville. If you'd like to view the show notes or photo I took of Marcus, you can do both on the Stories website, which is thestoriespodcast.com. I hope you enjoy my interview with Marcus Cobb. Okay, so I want to go ahead and set the scene. I'm sitting here with my new buddy, Marcus Cobb. CEO and founder of Jamber, and we are at the highest place I've ever been in Nashville. <laughs> I lived here for I don't know, like three, four years, and um, I'm not I'm not going to say exactly where we're at, but we're in a location downtown, and we're pretty high up. We're we're high enough up that I'm looking down on a rooftop where cars are parked on. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just I'll just say that. I think that's Kentucky over there. Is that is that Kentucky? Is that <laughs> yeah. what that is? Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Thanks so much for, for being on the show, man. I really yeah, appreciate it. Thanks you. for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, man. Me too. So um, let's go ahead and start simple. Okay. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up, had the privilege of growing up, I'll say, even in uh, El Paso, Texas. I was okay. born and raised there. Uh, my grandfather ended up just you know retiring there military-wise, and my family stayed. So I was there until about 16. Okay. Where'd you go after 16? I was definitely nomadic for a time period there. So uh, one time I counted, I think by the time I was 21, I'd moved like 23 times. Uh, You moved 23 (laughs) times between between the age of 16 and 21? Yeah. Did you leave home at that age at 16? No. uh, Ish. Yeah, actually... um, I went. I had a really colorful childhood, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ended up going to a foster home when I was sixteen. Okay. So okay, okay. foster home uh, in New Mexico, which was uh, actually a phenomenal experience. About as cool of a foster home as you can possibly go to. It was like yeah, a yeah. campus, you know. Yeah. So went from there to Las Vegas, Nevada, where I finished high school. Okay. And okay. then, long story short, ended up in Chicago, which kind of is where my business life really, really started. One of my closest friends. He. Um, <laughs> I love this guy. Yeah, he he ended up in a foster home when he was probably about the same age, yeah, 50, about maybe around 15, 16 in my hometown um in Virginia in Petersburg. And uh he 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 was telling me that basically he you know, he had issues with his parents um and things and so he he said when he was like 15, it was like him and his buddy, I think who was also about 15 and right. his little brother, who's like 14, 13 or 14, yeah. they all had like a trailer in a trailer <laughs> park living by themselves. Yeah, like, man. Yeah. And, and like, like they literally like were living by themselves. They're like working at Subway down the street. That's all works. And, and um, like social services are somehow found out like there's like three 14 year olds like just living just, it up, just, just, <laughs> just living in a trailer by themselves. <laughs> so they ended up they ended up grabbing him up, and I think that that might have been when he got plugged into the, the the foster home. But um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, man. Um, do you feel comfortable talking about your childhood a little bit? Oh yeah, man. It's in print now, so I okay. might as well talk about it. <laughs> okay, okay. A friend of mine just uh, put me in his book uh, last uh, in December, a few months oh, ago, which was interesting seeing it all in print. You know, I've told my story to kids before just to let them know that, you know, 
everyone goes through it. You can go through it, yeah. and, and still that can be a strength at the end of the day. But seeing it in print was really, really interesting for me because after talking about it for years, years, I mean, I'm about grown most of that. Now, reading the words back, it's like, wow, that really happened to me? That's that's not cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, yeah. I guess the long story short is we, you know, I have some of this rehearsed, right? Because I've said it so many times to kids mm-hmm. and given that and anything you want to talk about, we can definitely drill down sure, on it. Sure. El Paso in general was just a tough area at the time. It was, you know, a really dangerous city right next to the border, kind of a a gateway for drugs and gangs uh, into the country. And we lived, by the time I came around, we lived in an area of El Paso called the Barrio. You know, it was... It was Body oil, is that? The Barrio, B-A-R-R-I-O. You know. Oh, oh, barrio. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're barrio. pronouncing like like Spanish, barrio, yeah. barrio, barrio. For we lived in the barrio. <laughs> okay, B A R I. Okay. You know, it was it was by all accounts, I really had a great childhood outside of the home. Inside the home was different. You know, my stepfather was pretty abusive from the time I was about seven till sixteen. Was he like verbally abusive or physically, uh, physically abusive? Physically like, abusive. Okay would beat the crap out of me, right, yeah. as, as a kid. And that went on for one of the most traumatic stories I used to tell. And I, I used, every time I used to tell the story, it made me cry. Now I'm a little more desensitized to it, so I don't anymore. But one time, and this is actually in, in Tim Shaw's book. Yeah, what, can you give me the name of that book? Yeah, it's called Blitz Your Life by Tim Shaw. So Tim Blitz Shaw okay. um, is a fantastic linebacker. Uh, most recently for the Tennessee Titans, but mm-hmm. uh, found out uh, a few years ago that he was uh, had ALS. And so he started really writing out his memoirs, and it turned into this amazing book called Blitz Your Life. Uh, he's a great guy, first of all. He's got some a really unique treatment that he got into last minute, so hopefully mm-hmm. it turns out to be a happy, a happy ending because he's definitely that guy that you wanted to work out for. Uh, but he put a few of us into the book, and they came by and interviewed me, and I was just like, yeah, sure, we'll see what happens. And next thing you know, the book is in print. And I'm like, ah, ah, it's out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, you know, fast forward, my stepfather was just a jerk, man. You know, he was, he was, uh, he was a crack addict. You would never know it because he's a good-looking cat. He was six, I don't know, six two, six four. I don't remember. Uh, played football in the Army, bodybuilder. But just love drugs, you know. So fast forward, I got the brunt of a lot of that crack head anger. <laughs> and but I never you know, I was fortunate that I escaped in music. I was always trying to start a boy band or sing whatever, whatever was out at the time. I escaped in basketball, which I played basketball in high school. And I escaped in church. I was a huge church girl at the time, man. I was I was always at church. My parents would never tell me no. I couldn't go. So I was at church like seven days a week because I wasn't at home, too. And what know? age were you at this point? Right? Uh, at this point, when I, really, I mean, we grew up singing in church in my family. But uh, the conscious aspect, probably 11 or 12, okay. I was really, okay. really trying to protect my identity in a way just by being removed from the situation. And I think it's pretty heavy. I mean, I've been through a lot just in general. That being said, when I talk to kids now, it's really powerful for them to know that what you've been through doesn't define where you go. 
And in fact, it can be the exact opposite. All you got to do is survive it today, this, this two shall pass kind of thing. And, and that's just really something I'm really passionate about. Very cool, man. Very cool. Was there anything else happening in the home that, that affected you other than your stepdad um, and, and that the drug behavior? Yeah, all of it. It was just a toxic place. Not all the time. It wasn't like it was toxic every day. And it was very yin-yang. Right? The neighborhood I lived in, which was primarily Hispanic, really mostly Mexican, but primarily Hispanic, was this pretty amazing cataclysm of families that all just had each other's back. You know, mm-hmm. anybody could spank you. <laughs> uh, you were always eating at somebody's house, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a geek early on. He was, even as a kid, and I would do these really elaborate science fair projects. And all the mamas, you know, all my yeah. tias would come in and bring different supplies because we were, you know, we weren't, we weren't wealthy people. But everyone would chip in and it would be this production. At some point in time, they'd get so excited about my project, they would take over, <laughs> you know. But so you had that environment and the friends that came with that. And then you had, when the door was closed, just a very, very different thing. And it was, my mom really could have done a much better job in hindsight. And I haven't, I haven't really ever talked to her about this, but she could have done a much better job of setting a standard. Uh, but she had her own demons, you know, that she was fighting and dealing with. Uh, not drugs or anything like that nature, but just really angry, some childhood issues. Just, you know, my, my grandparents got divorced when she was like 14. So that, that mm-hmm. never really, she never really got over that. Neither here nor there, it, it was, you know, my grandmother, uh, really did both grandmothers an amazing job of protecting me in their own way. I mean, they were just angels in my life, man. <laughs> they were angels in everyone's lives because grandma's, you know, the matriarchs of the family back then. Okay, so... Got me reminiscing here. Like, yeah. yeah, man, <laughs> this is the place to do it. We got time, man. So so when you were 16, you moved to New Mexico, right? Is that said right? In foster care? Yeah, someone, um, someone involuntarily, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, involuntarily. <laughs> Yeah, somewhat so. What was my, the story? Well, my, you know, she'll hear about this eventually. She knows how I feel. But my mom was crazy, man. <laughs> Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, I feel like Kevin Hart, the stories he tells, you know, uh, about his dad, I feel that way about both my parents. They were just, they just, it wasn't healthy. And at 16, I ran away. My stepfather beat the crap out of me like on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. And he was a big man. <laughs> so. And at this point in time, when you've been physically abused as a kid most of your life, you look at it, it becomes a different thing. You're not, it's rare that, especially when you're a young man and, and growing into your own. Because when you're a kid, you're helpless. But as you, as you get a little older, a little taller, you start feeling yourself and that fight or flight kicks in for victims of abuse. It's almost never for sustained abuse. It's rarely ever flight the ones I know. It's usually fight, and that fight can be in two ways. Just kind of standing your ground and just taking it, so you're fighting the the damage, you're fighting the victim mentality, or you eventually fight back. Mm-hmm. Or you, it, it kills one of you. <laughs> Those are kind of how mm-hmm. the stats work. So that was the time where I chose to fight back just a little bit, not, it was a really big man. But anyway, ran away the next day, Ended up hanging out with some friends for like a week. I was gone. This is my second time running away. Uh, but it was so free, man. I was, it's kind of like, I wish I had it as cool as your friends did living in a, we didn't, we didn't have a trailer and I definitely didn't have a job oh, yeah. at Subway, you know. <laughs> but 
when I came back, my family was about to move to Las Vegas and essentially said, you're not coming with us and left me there. So my grandmother's kind of rallied around me. I finished out that year of school and it turned out I had a cousin who worked at a foster home in New Mexico. Okay. And that's where they sent me. That's how it worked out. Okay. Uh, which ended up being a, a major turning point in my life because it really separated me from my brother in contrast, who he and I are very, very close, but he stayed underneath that covering, I'll say, and stayed in that environment. Mm. And he ended up going to prison. He ended up just, all, my, my sister has all kinds of health issues. So I'm really fortunate that I was the organ kind of jettisoned out of, of that place. So I, I want to ask you a couple of questions and we can, we can dig deeper into your story as well. One thing I want to ask is there's some people that are listening to this that are going to say, you know what? That's fucked up. Like, let's, <laughs> let's be honest. Yeah, man. And, and they're going to feel it. So my question for you is when someone's feeling that and they want to be able to do something to help you, the you now, the kid that today in 2017 was you, that same situation back then. Right. The next version. The, the, the next version. Yeah. What can they do? How can they help a kid in that situation? Well, I'll tell you, because I, I was helped in that situation, you know, shortly after the foster home. And that was a turbulent time for me, just trying to find myself. But I had a couple of miracles happen. One was I ended up, my mom is a divorcing asshole. Can I call him that? Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> my mom is a divorcing asshole. Uh, she, I ended up moving to Vegas after uh, my time in New Mexico. And we are living in an area of Las Vegas called the Baby Ghettos, the BGs. Okay. Uh, BGs, it's five blocks by five blocks, 86 homes, quadruplexes. And according to the news anyway, one of the most dangerous areas in all Las Vegas, more murders, more arrests in that area than almost all of Las Vegas combined. But my, my brother and I, we grew up in this environment. You kind of just mind your own business and go to and from school. But that neighborhood was zoned for a school that fit that particular demographic. So I remember walking up to school, my senior year of high school, and getting ready to register. And the moment I get to campus, I see gang colors flying. I see, mm -hmm. you know, handkerchiefs hanging out of people's back pockets, and there's yeah. these little pockets here and there. And uh, some kids are smoking weed on the, the rafters, whatever they're called, the stadium rafters. And the, the, the football coach is right over there. And nobody was – I literally didn't even walk past the gate. I Man, I turned around, went back home, said I'm not going to that school. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, so that school is maybe – Two miles, miles south, mm -hmm. just the same distance north was the richest school in Las uh, Vegas, uh, Cimarron Memorial, uh, definitely one of the richest schools. So went there. I couldn't play basketball anymore because I got his own variants, you know, because like, okay, if you want to switch schools to keep kind of coaches from poaching players, you couldn't switch schools if you weren't living in that zone. Anyway, it's a long story, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the two major points of this. Got into the school, had all electives. One of the electives was computer science. So I had too many credits to graduate in Nevada because I was, it was a different credit system than New Mexico. So yeah, biology, choir, choir two, choir ensemble, mm -hmm. <laughs> yearbook, and computer science. Loved that class, man. Yeah. Which is interesting that that school, music and computer science, and now that's exactly what my job is now. It's fascinating mm -hmm. looking back, right? Yeah. Halfway through the school year, that teacher's like, Marcus, I'm so proud of you, man. You're picking this up really quickly. You obviously love this. You're ahead of the rest of the class in the book. 
He goes, so there's nothing more I can teach you. So I'm going to teach you how to teach yourself. You're going to teach class for the rest of the year. Okay. I already cleared with the dean, Dundell. And that was a major turning point in my life. The whole school found out about it. And that led to the second miracle where this woman found out about it. And we'll talk about her later because she was the angel that changed my life. But she found out about it and then hired me to work on computers for her business at 20 bucks an hour, you know, cash. And I'm 17, 18 years old. And that, that woman changed my life. She was the first entrepreneur I ever met. And I, I did after that. So that's a long way of saying that you just have to give these kids a chance. You don't want to... They have to want it, but if they do want it, help them get it. You know, put small steps. And I was broken, dysfunctional, toxic kid. Keep in mind, I'm a walking, I won't say cesspool, but it wasn't pretty. (laughs) I was outgoing, but like the smallest things would set me off. Mm The smallest things would make me cry. The smallest things would, I didn't have any character. You know, I had a hard time keeping my word. So you... I couldn't even keep a job. Like my first five jobs after school, I, I got fired. You know, so you don't want to enable them by covering and trying to be their saving grace. What you do want to do is develop their talents and skills, or help them develop their talents and skills, because art leads to hope. Hope leads to movement, and their hope has to be a self-generating hope because it's the only thing. Because if you leave, if they leave that relationship with you, what else do they have? Make sense? Yeah. Uh, You have to give these kids hope and then you have to give them a place where they can transport from their environment to somewhere else where they can heal a little bit and they realize the world is bigger than what they're living in. Mm. Heal, you said heal. Heal, yeah, absolutely. Um, Because the moment you heal an abused home, they, they, they pick at the scab again. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you want to give these kids a place, excuse me, where you can just heal, basically. Yeah. Even even for a weekend. For one weekend, I know I'm not getting my ass beat. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know, but we're gonna work on fashion. We're gonna go drive around nice neighborhoods. We're gonna go camping in the woods, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Just an escape to show them how big the world is. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of like organizations, are there any organizations that you can think of either local to Nashville or national organizations? I know some folks listening might be outside of Nashville. Um, can you think of any yeah. organizations that are doing things that can, one, uh, it sounded like there was a little bit of a sort of mentorship slash apprenticeship in there. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, can you think of any organizations where someone could go and volunteer and be that for, for one of these kids? I'm glad you asked that. The first one that comes to mind here in Nashville is Notes for Notes. I wasn't thinking about them when I was laying those things out, but they are the epitome of that. So Notes for Notes. Um, and what exactly do they do? Could you explain? Yeah, they partner with, and forgive me, I can't remember if it's, uh, I think it's Boys and Girls Club or YMCA, but they built these state-of-the-art recording studios in partnership with these facilities. And teenagers, kids have free access to this place. I'm talking state-of-the-art mixing boards, beautiful booths, sound booths where people can record and and instruments, all these things. And these kids come in after school and they lay down amazing music. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Notes for Notes, we actually sponsor them anytime we can because I love the program. When I first heard about it, I was thinking like, ah, a little rickety studio and a bathroom that's not being used anymore. Uh, But in fact, they're, they're transportive. 
And mm. when I heard the music these kids are working on, it's top quality. It's mm. really, really good stuff. So I like them a lot. Uh, my sister has, and I think it's notesfornotes.org. Okay. But definitely, uh, you and I can exchange links. So you can share that with your sure, listeners and sure. let's just show that. Yeah. Uh, one other example is just my sister's organization called IC Stars. Uh, she's my adopted sister uh, oh, in unquote. Chicago. Yeah, quote unquote. She, the letter I, the letter C, the word stars.org. Mm-hmm. And, she and has, what do they do? They basically, it's a boot camp for, they start off for inner city youth, but now it's inner city adults. Adults that are new to the states, they take them through leadership, business, and technology training in this really intense four-week. They even pay them a stipend, and then they do job placement at the end of it. So she's currently in Chicago, but she's since expanded to Detroit and Mexico City, I believe. Love that program. It's, she's changing mm-hmm. lives. So yeah, those two come to mind. But there are lots of programs. I mean, you know, the last one I'll give is when I was a kid, I remember going to something called a YES seminar, and it was a- just— AS. Uh, y e s. Why yes? Okay. Y-E-S yeah. Yes. Seminar. Yes. Seminar. Am I mumbling? Is this, is this numbing stuff uh, in my mouth? Oh, oh no, you're good. Man. You're good. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yeah. He, Marcus. Marcus is. Uh, he's been struggling with a, a toothache, right? Struggling with a toothache, man. Yeah. yeah. But, but still doing the interview and working on a big project after this, and we're already in the evening, so. Yeah. Yeah. It's dedication. It's dedication, man. Like you said, the show must go on, right? But uh, I'm I'm enjoying this too, so I really appreciate you yeah, spending man. time with me, man. But so. I think I forgot what we were talking about. But uh, we, we were talking about organizations. That's yeah, like yeah, yeah. My yes, sister's yes one. Thank you. That's uh-huh. what was important. But it was just again transport as a kid. They took us to a university, uh, University of Texas at El Paso, mm-hmm. and we did things like who makes the f- the airplane fly the farthest? You know, uh-huh. drop eggs from two stories up and build something so they don't break. Just those kind of challenges we've all probably done in different environments. But it was also very transporter for me. And looking back, it just it helped ignite my imagination. So I will say this: the most important thing for these kids uh, is to keep their imagination alive and really invest in their belief system that it is achievable. And the best way to do that is to show by example. You know. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, th- I think that's that's super valuable because I mean, there's I mean, there's so many kids out there that they've only seen one side of the world, That's right. you know? Um, and, and, and it's funny that I say this cause I, I was, when I was saying that I was thinking more of quote unquote at risk youth, inner city kids, but, but it's true also with wealthier kids too. Cause for 100%. example, like, like I grew up in Virginia. Yeah. Um, I lived sort of growing up part of my childhood. I was living in sort of like suburban, yeah. not, not like rich suburban, but sort of like middle-class, like most of the people in the neighborhood were, were blue collar, but they right. were like, you know, middle-class, they still, you know, a lot of people own homes and things like that and yeah. mortgages. Um, and then, you know, I also lived in like the inner city. Right. So like, so like, I, and I saw all that. So I kind of got a little bit of exposure of both, even though all of that and yeah. all of the area I grew up in still was, I mean, there really wasn't, you know, myself, a lot of my friends, like none of our parents went to college. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, so even exactly. like middle class, it wasn't, there was still a lot of the world I wasn't exposed to. But then when I ended up going to UVA, yeah. University of Virginia, it's like a lot of kids there grew up, you know, pretty well off. Not right. saying everyone, there definitely were people that had survivor stories right, and things, right. but, but, you know, it's interesting. And a lot of them like had like no exposure, no context yeah. to the other side. That's right. And so I, it, it, it would be great if there was like 
you know, some mandatory program where like a kid from a bad neighborhood had to live, you know, there was like a, yeah. a swap Swaps. or something, you yeah, know, swap your demographic. Yeah. 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 One, 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 yeah, yeah. Like once in middle school and once in high school or something like that. That for like would a year. be like that TV show wife swap, but like okay. li life swap, li life swap, life yeah, swap. Man, That'd be yeah. a great show. Yeah. man. If there are any producers out there that want to champion. This. Yeah. Yeah. Sign us up for it though. You know, we, we get royalties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. We, I think you're hundred percent right. And one of the things I've, I'm happy that I've learned is, the handicap swings both ways. You know, you can be, and this does often happen, child of a really wealthy family, which I have a lot of friends that are that, and that can be just as handicapping to you achieving your own dreams mm -hmm. as it is being, you know, from Crenshaw in LA and not being able to cross certain neighborhoods or living in Appalachian Mountains, right? Where you're homeschooled and your parents won't let you out because they believe the man's going to get you. Mm -hmm. um, I found that, that glass ceiling that our parents can put on us unintentionally or intentionally sometimes yeah. it's just universal doesn't mm -hmm. matter where you came from where your skin color is where you live it's just it's ubiquitous man yeah yeah no. there's one other organization i think i, I want to sort of highlight because i know that they're national um and because i know there's some folks out there that you know they may not be local to, to nashville or chicago but um big brothers big sisters um, yeah. i think is a really yeah. great organization and and they have i think different sub programs but their main thing is connecting at-risk youth okay. with, with a mentor. Yeah, that's um, fantastic. And, and so they claim that, you know, one-year commitment is sort of the minimum, mm -hmm. you know, commitment that, that you would want to be engaged with a young person because anything less than that, it actually can negatively affect them because they already have, you know, they're coming from a, an environment where they don't have any reliable right. adults in their life. Exactly, that um, abandonment, that rejection, that makes perfect sense. Yep. But yeah, and I've, I've spoke to a lot of folks that, work at places like Big Brothers Big Sisters as well yeah. as other mentorship programs. And the issue isn't that kids don't want mentors. There are kids that there's always a waiting list. There's not enough mentors. Right. There's not enough. And the, the funny thing is, if you think about it, there's more, excuse me, there's way more adults in the world yeah. than there are kids. Especially right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because, yeah, especially right now. I mean, you got kids are only what from the age of, I mean, think of someone you'd be mentoring. It'd be from the age of, Maybe, Maybe 10, six or six 10, yeah, so yeah, yeah. six or 10 to, to, you know, 18, 19, 20, you know, and then, you know, we got people, you know, living from 20 to 80 right. or even more. <laughs> and it's like, we got all these adults. Why, why aren't we, and, and think about the population of kids that, that really need mentors is even smaller it's than even that. Smaller than that. Yeah. So, so we got yeah. all these adults and then this, this small population at use risk, that are risk at risk youth, gosh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, <laughs> that are, um, they want that relationship, you yeah, know, yeah. you know, they're craving it and not all of them are going to get it. It's unfortunate, but, yeah. um, but yeah, I just wanted to kind of plug them as well. Oh, well, I'm glad you did. Cool. Okay. So let's talk about being a nomad a little bit. So being a what? Being a nomad. Oh yeah. <laughs> a nomad. So you finish, you finish high school. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then is that when you started you finished high school in New Mexico? Is that, am I getting that right? I finished high school in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Yeah. Okay. Cause you were there. And then tell me about you moving around. Like how did that come about? What's the story there? Most of it was before there's inertia, right? An object in motion stays in motion, but most of it was when I was a kid. So I think when I counted, well, put in perspective, I mean, I went to six different high schools. So oh, wow. six high schools. I went to, uh, I think two or three different middle schools. And I went to at least two different elementary schools. And I think, and then within that, there's just a lot of bouncing around. I think 
looking back, I wonder if uh, my stepfather's drug problem was part of that turbulence, whether financially or whatever it might be. I don't really know. Um, but we just moved around a lot. And also my mom going through her, her things. And, you know, my mom is a great friend of her friends. She was just a horrible mom to me. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, even with it, her friends, what were we going to say? I was just saying, what was it about your mom that, you know, felt like you felt like she was lacking? Allegedly. <laughs> uh -huh. Allegedly. Allegedly. I, we just developed a very codependent relationship early on. My mom had me pretty young, number mm -hmm. one. I think she's around 17. Okay. okay. Um, number two, the man who she had me with, my, my biological father, uh, and that's always a, a sign when people call their dad that, right? <laughs> yeah. I think that she loved him or was really infatuated with him when, when they met. He was older. I still don't know how much older he, he is. But I think in some ways he was also, he was a gangster. He was a thug. He was an alcoholic at the age, from the age of 12. And I think that he was just a loser kind of in her mind when all was said and done. There's a frustration there. You know, here she's bringing this son into the world. And he probably said all these different things like guys do in the first place. And then I came and I really disrupted her life in a, a negative way, I think in some ways. Um, it was hard for her to go to school. She's got a baby now. And I think the bitterness of her parents' divorce and the bitterness of her relationship with my my dad, I'll call him, was transferred into me in some ways. Uh, I think every time she saw me, I was a reminder of those things. So things and these things are unfortunately way too common in, in homes. You know, she would kick me out of the house every holiday, no matter from the time I was 12, just, every, just mm. because she was mad. You know, she would you know, pulled a knife at me one time for something over $2. And this, mm. my mom was a beautiful, articulate woman. She, mm -hmm. you would never, ever see the side of her. She's, but that was my reality. And she's like, I'm on the phone crying. My friends, come get me, man. Come get me. She's throwing my stuff out of the front of the house. It's just. And how old were you? Like, give me, give me an the age. The first time the she was kicked me out, I think my brother and I were, my brother and I, like I said, really close. We're a year and a half apart. I want to say the first time I was 14. Mm -hmm. 12 or 14, something like that. And after that, it was literally four times a year, at minimum four times a year. So I ended up being homeless because of her throwing me out and nowhere to go. You know, she wouldn't let me come back home. And I was, obviously didn't have any money. I was a kid. Um, but so that, like it is, it's, it's a heavy background. It's a heavy life. I, I went through a lot to get to this point in time. But as I tell people I talk to now, I'm not that kid anymore. I'm not, I'm not the victim anymore. I'm the champion of my life. Um, but not without scars. <laughs> so, sure. Uh, but my mom was just that. She was that. I mean, she was just half and slap me for no reason sometimes. She was she was just that person. But then go, like, she never saw me perform. You know, she, when I was, music was my life. She never came to school to support me. She, none of that stuff. I had an amazing teacher who would let me sleep at the my final high school. I would sleep in the band room. And my teacher would bring me pillows and uh, blankets, and I'd sleep in the band room. And my teacher would come in the morning and I won't say his teacher was because I don't want to get in trouble years later, but we would just kind of go play hooky and she'd buy me breakfast and orange juice and it took me back to school. You know, I had straight A's at that point in time, but that was just who my mom was. So who knows the reasons why I'm working on just letting all that go and forgiving her and just parents are people too, you know? Yeah. And sometimes, oftentimes they don't live up to our hope of what they might be. We have this template for what a good parent is and, very few parents, I think, actually meet that template. And I'm 
always envious of, of the of the kids who have had that. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so all that being said, you know, I'm not bad mouthing her. I'm just saying it as it is, as I remember it. And we don't talk to this day, and we haven't talked. We haven't talked in a long time. She tells people she's proud of me, and she shows off what we're doing. But in reality, our relationship's been distressed, and will probably always be distressed. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. You mentioned forgiveness yeah. there, and, yeah. and and I was going to ask you next subject. Uh, Next subject. <laughs> oh, we got we got a lot of subjects, man. Um, pass. Yeah, you want to pass? No, I'm joking. Okay. I'm joking. Why is that important to you to forgive her? Because unforgiveness is equivalent to chaining yourself to that person. It continues to fuel the power they inflicted over you in the first place, and also it keeps you in the past uh, because there's a part in us that wants to right that wrong especially if it feels like something treacherous or, or tragic you know being beat by your parents should never happen and you're like why did you do this why didn't you love me more and your soul is trying to reconcile that pain and it wants to get into a time machine and go back and correct it but you can't do that it's the time machine doesn't go backward it only goes forward so if you don't forgive it's always there it's always there. It's, it's a debt that goes unpaid and it's always on your balance sheet, so to speak. And you're never going to get it back anyway. So there's a point in time just to write off that debt and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Easier said than done. I mean, I've mm-hmm. still not definitely not there. I'm not, not sure how I would feel if I saw my mom or mm-hmm. she walked in the room right mm-hmm. now. Right. But I do know that when I, and I vent a little bit. I will say I might have gone on social media not too long ago <laughs> and shared some of my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, that was important. I had to heal. I had to call her out about some things I, I felt were shady. But then I just breathed. I'm like, you know what? Teach their all, man. Grow and yeah. let grow. That's it. Yeah. 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 Now, there might be a kid listening to this yeah. that has had a similar childhood as you. Yeah. And I remember one of the things you said that stood out earlier was that, you know, when you're a kid, it's almost like in a way you feel, you feel powerless. You you don't yeah. feel like you have the same power, especially if you're not, you haven't hit that, that growth spurt yet. But yeah. even so, yeah. you know, um, if you're at an age where you're, you're too young to work, you're too right. young to, to get money and be independent. So you're somewhat I guess, imprisoned, good or bad to whatever life, whatever life is, is put before you. Now, what would you say to a kid that's in that situation right now? Yeah. You know, first of all, I would say that whoever uh, you are, young woman or young man, the most important thing is it's not your fault. You know, uh, your parents have issues that are their own issues and they're making some really bad decisions right now and how they're treating you. Really bad decisions that if we knew what they were doing and we would not approve, and the majority of the world would not approve and we would come and rescue and protect where we could. And if it's really, really bad, there are people you can reach out to. Uh, so everything from, and I, I know that's a double-edged sword because I was a ward of the state, you know. But let's say you can't reach out to anybody. Let's say you've tried and all that's failed. You're going to grow up. And you're going to be a big kid one day. But in the meantime, find something that you love to do that makes you really happy, whether it's drawing, 
or writing music or riding your bike and put all your frustration, all your anger into being really good at that one thing. And what you're going to find out is you're going to be amazing at it. You're going to be faster than other people. You're going to be stronger than other people because what you're doing is you're taking that hate that these bad people are putting into your heart and you're turning it into self-love by investing in yourself and doing something that you love to do. And that's really, really powerful. It can change your life. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make the, it doesn't make the sexual abuse and molestation go away. It doesn't make the, the bruises go away on your face. But it does, it does warm your heart when it gets really, really cold. So it's not your fault they're messed up. Put yourself into the things you love to do. I used to hide a, a notebook above my bunk bed and I would draw airplanes and robots in my notebook. And I used to play guitar and I, I'm not a very good guitar player, <laughs> but it would just made me feel good to play. And one time my mom, in fact, she, uh, to show you how she was, she bought me a guitar and then she broke it over my head, you know? So she took something I love. I took that really personally. I thought that was a really evil thing to do. But just keep in mind, they're, they're trying to break you. They're, they're trying to hurt you. And no one can take away that you love yourself. Don't give them that. No one can take away that you have ideas in your mind and you have an imagination. And if you keep that, you're actually stronger than they are. That's good, man. Yeah, man. <clears throat> can we pause for a second? Do you mind? Sure, just for sure. One second. No problem. We'll come back. All right. We're back. We just took a quick break. Um, all right, man. I want to talk about music. Yeah. Who are you listening to right now? And before you say it, <laughs> let's keep it independent. I, I want to see how many bands or artists we can break on this podcast. Is yeah. there anyone that is not signed to a major record label that you're really feeling right now? Yeah. I mean, um, the first person that comes to mind immediately is this kid, Corey, K-H-O-R-I, uh, Corey Four, Corey Music. He's based out of St. Louis, but he travels back and forth between there and Chicago. <clears throat> Young hip-hop artist, this guy's on point, man. Yeah. Right? He's just, he's not signed yet because he's all about the music. He's figuring out the business side and the marketing side, which we're helping him with. But he is just, he's, he's on point. I like him a lot. Um, there's a girl who I haven't even talked to in a while. I just kind of follow her on Instagram because she and I were friends back in the day. Um, I was living in Chicago. I, we just kind of, she's she's grinding, I'm grinding, so we just haven't sure. caught up. Her name is Anya V, A-N-Y-A-V. I don't understand why this girl's not signed yet. She is she is on point, so I, I would say those two for sure. How about you, though? You gotta, you gotta... Yeah, I'll try to keep the list short, but um, so yeah, uh, a couple of guys that, that, are, that I'm really feeling right now, um, Okay, so I'll go ahead and listen. First one, this guy called School. School, okay. based out of L.A. If if you can find him on SoundCloud and Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff, it's yeah. School My School, just spelled S C H O O O O L yeah. My School. He's got this song called I Doubt It, and uh, I heard it. Um, he was playing it for some people at South by um, okay. some execs there, and I just happened to be in the room, and I just like approached him. I was like, "Yo, this is tight." <laughs> um, and and it's funny, like I was actually when I was at South by, I was camping, and um, I was talking to someone that was that was at the campsite, and I was like, "Yo, I'm just we were gonna play a little bit of music." I was like, "Yeah, there's this song I'm like really obsessed with, like." I just like playing it over and over and over and over. Yeah, yeah. And it was his song. And so I'm like, I want to see what you think about it. Because I'm like, 
do other people think this is cool? Because like I'm obsessed <laughs> with this song, me? man. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so his genre, just just to, just to paint a picture, and you guys can go check his music out. But his genre is sort of, um, uh, I don't know, sort of like electronicy. But it's kind of this song is kind of fun. Um, I yeah. think he might have in some of his other songs a little bit of hip hop. But but it's sort of for, sort of poppy, sort of electronicy. Yeah. But yeah. it's it's got a really good vibe, something that makes me feel good, makes me kind of want to nice. dance around a little bit. I'm, but I'm um, definitely check him out myself now. Yeah, you yeah, sold me. yeah, yeah. <laughs> check him out. But yeah, so so I play the song. I'm yeah. like, yeah, yeah. I want to see if you guys like this. And so I start playing it, and then this guy's like, Yeah, is, is this your song? I was like, I was like, I was like. No man, like I like I, I don't listen to my song. Like I, I'm not really obsessed with my own songs. Um, I was like, the only time I listen to my songs a hundred times in a day is like when I'm working on a mix right, or when something. You're mixing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Usually, usually by the time I put my project out, I'm like over it. Yeah, I, yeah I've already listened to every song like yeah. a thousand times in the mixing process. So. Um, until it's but, time um, to just perform it live. That's it, right? Yeah, yeah. Just you're not, you're not, you're not buying your own CD like that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> or you might buy it, but you're not playing it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So so that dude, another guy I met at South By, um, that's really dope, Kyle Bent. I think his handles are at I am Kyle Bent. That dude's a hip-hop artist. I seen him doing a live show, and great performance, really good eye contact, good presence. Got it, yeah. And... Um, He's based out of Boston, and, and I met him. He's, he's a really cool dude. And and the thing that stood out about him, other than just like his his performance, was uh, what he was saying. It was like it was message. Good message. Good yeah, message. Yeah. Very very thought out. Very thought provoking. And you know he writes he writes his own lyrics. And yeah, so I was really feeling that. The last one I'll plug. Um, and this this is slightly different genre wise. Is um. Ashley I is actually a friend of mine based out of Atlanta. Yeah. She put out a new music video you guys can find on YouTube. I think her YouTube Twitter or something is at Ashley I Ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T. Okay. But um, she, she just put out a new music video called Self-Revelation. Oh, wow. And it's the song's good. It's got a um, some acoustic guitar in it. It's yeah. got um, a little bit of, um, I don't know, kind of some drums. And it's it's sort of... Yeah, it's got a it's got a very chill vibe to it, and she she's a really talented singer songwriter there uh, based out of Atlanta, and, and the music video is, is really good, uh, really well produced. So um, hats off to her. Nice, add it to the list, man. Yeah, yeah, likewise. <laughs> out, yeah, L- likewise, man, likewise. So let's talk about music with you. Okay, yeah. w- when did you first start getting into music? Man, I was I was born into music. <laughs> I think most of us. My grandma was a piano teacher. Uh, my mom could sing really, really well. My all my aunts either sang or did poetry, uh, and there was upright piano in our house. So I, I was I was born into music, and uh, in, in that way, I'm a lifer. Cool man, cool. When did you start singing? Well, I started thinking I could sing <laughs> early on. Uh, my uh, grandmother and my mom, they were choir directors at our church where somebody of us get our start and we'd be, we'd have those like family talent show nights or, you know, Sunday night service or a little more chill. And we get up there, me and my brother, me and my brother, my sister. And I don't know how good I sounded, but I know I was singing my heart out. I was theatrical mm-hmm. with it. You know, I was like, <laughs> I won't do it right now, but I was just into it. So the adults and the, the elders would always applaud us on and stuff like that. But I started taking it seriously really in school. I want to say high school. Mm-hmm. You know, I just sang all the time, all the time, all the time. And 
high school choir our freshman year is where I got serious about it and met other singers too mm-hmm. and started putting a whole group thing together, started trying to learn how to produce and fast forward here we are. Cool. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. Let's kind of shift and talk about computer science a little bit. Yeah. So you said, how old were you when you started to get into computer science? I was lucky that in El Paso, the elementary school I went to, shout out to Hacienda Heights. <laughs> and those who are listening, if you fund uh, school programs, keep computers in the schools. Um, I second grade, man. It's the first time I touched a computer. Uh, oh, we, wow. had a, we had a computer lab, and that's where it started. I think by the time I was 12, I wrote my first computer game. And uh, oh, wow. what was that game? It was, uh, do you remember, have you ever heard of those choose your own adventure books? Yeah, like where it's like at the end of it, flip the page, you right. know, such and such, if you want this. Right. Does ending. Gary walk to the door or uh-huh. does he walk away? You know, yeah, yeah. If Gary walks to the door, go to page 40. If he walks uh-huh. away, go to page 50. You know, yeah. uh, I love those books. I would do every ending, you know, to okay. see how the storyline would change. And I, I wrote a game like that. It was uh, in this old language no one even uses anymore called Apple Logo. And it was a wizard and something in a castle and dragons. And like you would yes or no and, and walk you through the storyline. I love that game so much. I used to carry, I know most of you don't know what this is, but a floppy disk. I had my game on a floppy disk. Which, which is one? The three and a half? The hard floppy the disk or the soft, soft floppy one? That actually flopped when you Literally waved a floppy it. disk. Yeah. yeah. About the size of a, of a CD. And I know people don't know what that is either, but I don't have any other analogies. <laughs> but <laughs> about that size and literally floppy. And they were really fragile, but I was just carrying that thing everywhere. But that's where it started, man. I really got infected by that and 3D graphics. So I got into 3D gaming. Coding gaming's the next thing you know. I got I got a job at Microsoft after high school one day. So so did you go to college? No, I didn't go to college. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so you went. How old were you when you started working at Microsoft? I was nineteen or twenty. I think I was twenty. And how did they find you? They Microsoft does a great job of recruiting. Really, they were they just purchased a healthcare company in Atlanta. So I must have been twenty one. And a recruiter called me one day. I said, "Hey, we've got this job with Microsoft and this healthcare company. Do you want it?" Like, it's Microsoft. Yes, please. <laughs> and you, and you, were you living in Atlanta at the time? I was actually in California at the time. Okay, and all over the place. I was uh, definitely. There's, there's where at in Cali? Not many states I haven't lived in. I was in Temecula, California, which is literally almost exactly between L.A. and San Diego. It's about an hour and a half north of San Diego. Okay, wine country, uh, beautiful, beautiful town. I was living there working on a project and uh, got the call. I think it was actually, I think it was really serendipitous. I believe I was visiting Atlanta randomly through visiting a church or some people that I met on the internet or a combination of all the above. And while I'm there, I'm about to fly back on Monday. On Sunday, I get a call from my recruiter and said, hey, Microsoft wants to talk to you. I'm like, where's the job at? The job's in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. It's in Atlanta? That's weird <laughs> yeah i'm in atlanta you know for the first oh. time ever in my life maybe i should take this as a sign and go check it out so you were uh, just in atlanta visiting random my first random. time ever yeah just okay. randomly and i got the call that sunday before i was supposed to fly back so as anyway yeah it was fascinating and how did you um in your early days like fund all this travel were you were you just taking uh random coding projects or well uh, again you know life I keep calling it lucky. When I say luck, I, I, I like the definition of opportunity meets preparation. I think that's what a lot of luck is. I was lucky again, and, and that way, I just coded because I loved it. I was passionate about it. I was drawn to it. And you got to follow your heart because there was no big programming. 
IT jobs weren't the jobs in the job boards, you know. Um, but when I happened to graduate high school with those skills, it was it was the dot com time, you know. So everybody wanted programmers all over the place. I, so right out of high school, this one lady's paying me twenty bucks an hour, which was forty thousand dollars a year cash, which is a lot for a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, next thing you know, my next job, I think I'm making eighty thousand, ninety thousand. I'm not even twenty years old yet, and that was a lot for, the, uh, for a kid too. So I was. I wasn't always, I wasn't flying first class. You know, sometimes I was just yeah. on a Greyhound bus. You know, sometimes I was uh, on Frontier Airlines. <laughs> it didn't. I didn't whatever I could get. So it wasn't. I, I definitely wasn't living it up that way. Which, funny enough, anecdote uh, is why the first job I ever got fired from, like hardcore fired from, was Microsoft. And I'm happy to say that they wanted me to come back to run. Yeah. Yeah. So Microsoft, I love you guys for uh, for making me a job offer in Seattle years later, but. I just didn't have any character, man. I was showing up at work hour and a half, two hours late, and, not, and I was super talented, you know, so I would get my work done quicker, and I thought that was all that mattered. I didn't understand yeah. the power of process and the power of just uh, accountability. Those things didn't matter to me. Like, I got the job done. Why do you – why mm-hmm. why, do you, why do I have to be at a desk if I'm already done with my work, you know? Like, I really couldn't understand. I still don't quite understand that concept, but I respect it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we're going to fire you if you're not there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You understand the game. I understand the game. I understand mm-hmm. the power perceptions. Um, so I remember walking in, and we did this huge, big project, and I was successful. I was the youngest guy on the team. I was the only one without a, a degree or advanced degree, and I was a team lead. Like I was feeling myself a little bit, you know, and they gave me like this travel card and this American Express gold card or whatever it was, and, and I'm t- – I'm a 20-year-old kid from the hood, man. You cannot just give me a credit card yeah. and a $90,000 salary. I was buying everybody PlayStations. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. So anyway, I got a phone call from my manager one day right after we finished the project. He goes, hey, Marcus, it was a dream job. I actually got to work from home 6% of the time. So I said, hey, Marcus, uh, are you coming to the, the office today? I'm like, no, I'm not. I don't think so, Tom. I'm. I got everything done. He goes, "Why don't you come to the office today?" Uh, I said, okay. He goes, "Ah, oh, and bring your laptop." I, I got that ooh. lump in my throat, like, "Uh oh, I'm in trouble." And I was like, "Okay, well, I can talk my way out of it. I can talk my way out of it." Uh-huh. I get there. He's like, "Nope, you're fired." Please, you know, blah blah blah. He goes, "Nope, you're fired." But but I, nope, you're fired. Thanks, appreciate it. Bye. And that was the, one of the best firings I ever had because. It checked me, and I was immediately a better employee seeing, okay, there's limits, and I got to figure this out before I don't have a career anymore. So, yeah. Sure. And yeah. how long were you at Microsoft that first time? I want to say not even a year. I want to say I was there like maybe eight months. Eight months. Yeah, yeah. And did you go back to work for Microsoft later when they when they offered you a job? Ironically, it was, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do, but I had to turn down the job. Um, they gave me a job offer to help design the money systems for Xbox, you know, for Xbox credits, those kind of different things. In Seattle, it was my dream job, but I was a full-blown entrepreneur at this point in time, and I was doing pretty well in that space, and it just, the offer wasn't quite strong enough then to make me uh, go to Seattle. So what I did instead is I printed out the job offer and I framed it. Uh, <laughs> I'll get in my office for a while just to yeah. remind me, but I love that company. I, I'm a Microsoft kid. I grew up in Microsoft and idolizing Bill Gates and I want to be a black Bill Gates. I said it way before Beyonce ever said it in her Lemonade album. But uh, yeah, man, it's 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 Microsoft is an important part of my soundtrack. And now, now tell me what you were doing at Microsoft. 
Yeah, in general, so my gift in computer science has always been around, well, not I only say gifts. I wouldn't say I'm incredibly gifted at it. I'll say my passion is for user experience and just making sure that technology doesn't feel like technology. It's not getting in the way of what you're trying to do, uh, which it often does, right? We're like, why is this so hard? Why do I have to go to five different screens and click 25,000 times just to say, send an email? So... I was uh, just a regular programmer at first at Microsoft, and we were working on the ability to schedule your doctor's appointments right from, at that time, Outlook, which was uh, like calendaring and email and all those different things. And really, you could sync your calendar from anyone else, your florist, your, your nail people. But our, our particular example was for healthcare. And I organized, I designed the entire thing. I, I architected it with my teammates. And it was fun, you know, and I, and I, obviously I blew it, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, I learned a lot of, uh, I learned a lot from that. And trust me, a lot of entrepreneurs get fired a lot. So if you're, you know, after listening and you're like, oh, that's me, most entrepreneurs get fired multiple times. Not all, but a, a lot of us do. Yeah. We and why out. do you think that is? By nature, entrepreneurs don't like boxes. Yeah. You know, most of the things we Entrepreneur means you bring something new into the world. And most of the things we bring new into the world are because we don't like the status quo. We, we're allergic to status quo, in fact. And if you like status quo, it's more probably, it's probably a better career path to be a, a politician. <laughs> but if you, if you, you don't really fit the norm. So you tend to break it all the time. And mm-hmm. it takes a while to learn the game, like you said. So what happens after Microsoft? A series of, I had some really cool corporate jobs for companies like GE and uh, Citigroup, but I was always had one foot in startups somewhere. I was always mm-hmm. starting a company. Okay. I loved branding, so I like come up with a brand, I'm like, let's build a company around it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is not the way to do business, by the way. But instead, you want to start with something people are willing to pay for and the customer, and then we're, we're backwards from there. But really did some cool systems. Anytime you swipe your credit card through Home Depot or Dell, it, it goes through the systems I got to help design over the years. Applying for a credit card, even your Southwest Airline card probably goes to the systems I, I designed over the years. Your credit score goes to systems I've designed over the years. Could you explain what those systems are, what they do? You know, the same way that if you and I call each other on the phone and I'm in LA, you're in New York, and we're we're both using our, our cell phones we don't want that call to drop, right? It's knowing when it does drop. Mm-hmm. And chances are, if you're thinking about how it works, it's because it's not working. You're looking, you don't have a signal. So you're looking for a signal or you're like, oh, the cell phone antenna is probably overloaded. People shouldn't talk like that, but we all do because when it's not working, we notice. It was my job to make sure that money moved from one place to the other without breaking. It had to be guaranteed. So if you swipe your credit card at a Home Depot, you don't want to stand there for two minutes, mm-hmm. right? Those systems can never go down because it disrupts the business. And it was my job with other people on the team to make sure that that, uh, that was the case. You just swipe your card and it just works. And the money goes from your credit card company to their credit card company seamlessly, all with you just swiping a piece of plastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, behind the scenes, is extremely complicated. What were you doing at GE? That was a cool job. They let me figure it out. I love solving big problems that put money back in people's pockets. That's been, it's been an ongoing pattern in my life. Um, and the guy hired me said, Hey, we 
have all these financial reports. We're not sure what to do with them, but we need more visibility. Like, just go fix it. What can you do to fix this problem? So they really just handed me a problem, didn't prescribe the how, which is awesome opportunity if you, if you like that. And I ended up creating a system for them called, I still remember what his name, because again, I name everything. So it was called uh, Remesis, which is a stupid name, but I loved it because it meant something because it had an acronym to it. I, I guarantee you right now, <laughs> so, some dudes are listening to that and nerding out. They're like, you're the guy that built Remesis. Yeah, 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 probably. I was a kid too. So when you were a kid doing those kind of solutions, there's was a lot of fanfare. But no, another place where I got fired from uh, because uh, the VP, there's... In a job like this, in a corporate America, there's usually my boss is the director, and that boss is a boss. It's called a VP or vice president. And the VP ended up loving me, kind of fell in love with me. And and he, one day, because he kept seeing all these different things I was doing, he's like, well, can you do this? Can you do that? And I'm just, just crank, I'm just here to serve, man. I'm just cranking it out. My director started getting a little salty, uh. you know? And I didn't, I, I had no political prowess. I didn't know you can't do that. And then one day, the VP moves my desk right next to his office. Says, Marcus, Ooh. you're going to sit right next to me from now on. We have a lot of stuff we're going to do. And I was fired the next week by my director. And, and the VP, even though he was above him, he couldn't stop that? I heard the narrative was that they said I left. Oh, so they yeah, kind of fired yeah. you so under the, the table and then tried to the act table like... And then told the VP, oh, Marcus left. Ugh, isn't that dirty. Isn't that so dirty, man. I didn't even know you dirty, could do man. that. That was my first exposure to corporate politics. Yeah. And <laughs> but, was that was Jack Welsh the CEO at the time? No, or? Jack had just left. Like, I I okay. came a couple years after him, but his culture, his management style was very much infused. We all had the book, you know, either you don't know Jack or another book he has called Execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I studied Jack's style because GE is still a force to be reckoned with. It definitely was during his tenure, and that's part of the reason why I took the job there. I was a, again, I'm a, I was a student of business, so anytime I could work at a company that I respected or want to be like when I grow up, so to speak, I, w- I would take that job in a heartbeat. Cool, man. Yeah. Let's talk about startups a little bit. Yeah, man. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, when you were at Citigroup and GE, you, <laughs> had, you had one foot, one foot in the corporate world, one foot in startups. Oh, what, what were some of the, uh, the first couple of startups that you worked on? Oh, man. Wow. I'm, I wonder how much of this code I have sitting on a dirty laptop somewhere in my, in my, my <laughs> basement. Old floppy. Old floppy disk. Yeah, I got to go play that game, man, if yeah. I can find a computer to use it on. <laughs> um, everything from consulting companies, which, in my, in my opinion, that's not really entrepreneurship now. I've learned it's just uh, you're a business owner, you're a sole proprietor because you're not really doing anything new. You're just adding your flavor to it. Everything from consulting companies to... Um, Video game companies to uh, really like I loved robotics, so try to do some really cool things around robotics. To finally, it started clicking. It became from just a hobby of me tinkering with ideas and businesses and trying to make a few bucks here and there. And I I made money in the space, but not a lot. I was basically doubling my salary in most of those cases. So you were making equal what your salary was. Right, exactly. That's, okay. Exactly. As a side, side business, project. which was great. I was I wasn't ever really motivated by money anyway as a kid. I was really motivated by impacting lives and the wow factor. When I would show this shiny object to someone, I'm like, oh wow, look what you did, Mark. I'm like, yeah, I know. So I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an artist, right? So I, I do it for uh, words of praise. But um you know fast forward there were t- kind of these three boom 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 four startups that led to Jamber. One, I worked for a startup just as an employee. I left uh, 
Citigroup or Chase to go to this little company called Tickets Now. And they were they would sell tickets to sports and events that you couldn't like step up kind of thing. Actually, mm-hmm. step up was our biggest competitor. That company grew really fast while I was there. And it was a life-changing experience for me because I'd never even seen anything like that. This guy we went from $20 million a year to I think like $300 million a year in a five-year period and from 30 employees or so, maybe 50 at the most, to 150, 175 employees in multiple sites. I'm like, wow. And I went, I was just a developer. I took a pay cut and next thing you know, I'm one of the top technical leads in this company because when a startup grows like that, you grow with it or, or you get out or out of the way, right? And did you, did you have equity in that? I did not have equity in that, which uh-huh. sucked because... That company ended up being purchased by Ticketmaster for three hundred million dollars. What, like, what company was that again? It's called Tickets Now. They're still around. So Tickets Now. You know, Ticket, Ticketmaster owns them. So, TicketsNow.com. Um, but we just had so much fun. And the part I was working on is all these people who own tickets, all these ticket brokers around the country, the world, didn't have a way of talking to each other about the inventory they had. So one person had a lot of Cubs tickets. One person had Celine Dion tickets, but. As a fan, you don't want to go to 15 different people. You want to go to one place and just get all the tickets you want, right? And we built a real-time system that really turned that industry on its head, which is ironic because that's, again, what we're doing at Jamber, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit, hopefully. Yeah, right? sure. Yeah. Uh, um, so anyway, that that company sold, but that CEO uh, remained a friend and a mentor for me for a while. And then I started my own software company right after that and then sold that software company. Um, and in business, we talked. That's what I call business porn, for lack of a better word, uh-huh. um, because every time you sell a company, it's a, well, not every time, a lot of times for entrepreneurs, it's a brutal experience. It's hard to let go of your baby. No one's ever really quite happy with the terms. Either they're overpaying or they're underpaying, and lawyers get involved, and it's expensive, and it's stressful. You lose your identity for a while because you're building a company, and now suddenly you don't have a job, and Everyone's like, well, you go on vacation, but you can only go on vacation so long. You can only eat so much resort food. <laughs> um, I have friends that have traveled the world, but there's no place like home. You know, so teach their own, but you'll find a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, and if you're out there listening to this, you know what I'm talking about. Selling your company kind of sucks. Um, but it, it looks good on the resume, and you go and do it again. So I sold a small company even before it was making money uh, for around uh, close to $10 million, mm-hmm. which was a lot of money to me back then. How long from the time that you started working on that to your exit when you sold it? What was that time period? Uh, about 18 months. Okay, wow. So yeah. that's, that's pretty fast. That yeah, was really uh, fast. Well, can yeah. you tell me what was the name of the company and what were you guys doing? That was Edo Software, E-I-D-O. It was a Greek word again. Still, okay. working, still working on the branding stuff. <laughs> but to me, it meant a lot. Yeah. Uh, E-I-D-O. And we, one of the things I learned working at Tickets Now when we grew so fast is we didn't know what software was running on what computers. You know, we went from having three or four computers and 10 people. Um, it's all of a sudden having hundreds of computers and servers all over the place. So, you know, Sharon, the accountant who had been, at, I'm making this name up, but an accountant who had been at the company forever, one day we just got rid of her laptop and the whole company goes down because she's been running, you know, all of our accounting software for years because it was a startup, you know. And what this software would do that we created at Ado was, it would basically like an x-ray, take an x-ray of everything you had going on uh, in your company from a software kind of computer standpoint and give you a snapshot of it, like Google Maps almost. Um, here's where the software's at. This looks really important. It was really beautiful uh, piece of software. But what was powerful for 
kind of technology managers was they could move things around almost on paper, if you will, on the screen, just kind of pretend, and it would let them know what would be impacted, and that's what the, the cell was. I didn't know what I had. I was just doing what I did. I was building something I thought was cool and had utility. It could be used by people and hopefully make their lives easier. The guys who tried to buy me or bought me did know what I had, and they knew what it was worth. So I undersold. I didn't have the right lawyers involved. It was just a How mess. I was, I think I was 27. Okay. And is this your first, the first company you've my sold? My first exit, yeah. Your first ever. exit. And then I was mad at my mentors because I went out to them and I said, this just happened, you know? Oh, you told them after the fact. Yeah. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, it happens to everybody. I'm like, ah, uh, ah, why, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So what were you going to say? Oh, um, no, I, well, you just mentioned mentors. Let's, let's yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. that a little bit. Um, uh, well, anyway, so I'm sorry. Real okay, quick, I'll yeah, just say finish, that, finish. you know, fast forward, because it's really important that all that sucked, it made me take time off from technology. I've been doing this technology all my life at this point in time. And I became a fashion designer really randomly. Oh, sweet. And then, which I think is probably a different show all to itself. Um, and then I was actually a lingerie designer uh, for five, six years. So I did high-end lingerie. I know, right? It's really random. You should, you guys out there should see his face right now. He's looking at me like complete curveball. No, I didn't say that coming. <laughs> uh, but I loved it. It changed my life. I can also keep saying that. There's all these major course corrections or turning points. Fashion set me free, man. It was... yeah. I, that's where I realized I'm not, I wasn't a computer programmer. I was a designer. And software was just the tool I used, one tool I used. Fashion was another. Music was another. I like creating experiences for people that bring joy to their life. Mm. Um, and fashion brought that out of me. I was around these crazy, quirky, weird people uh, who didn't care who was what. I wasn't in the snobby world because we were, we were indies <laughs> in the fashion world. Yeah. You know? Were you in New York? I was in, I was in Chicago, Chicago. But I, I had... Uh, I did a lot of business in New York. I did business in uh, Canada, which is where some of the top bra designers are at. You would never think that. I know a lot about bras, just so you know. I can design one right now. Um, France and uh, China, which I never went to, but just dealing with them virtually. But it just meant designing for my customers, my clients, uh, men and women, but especially women. And they hate shopping a lot of times for intimate apparel because it's just it's inconsistent. It's broken and sizes don't fit. And then brands are always changing the stuff they're working on and to create an experience for them where they could just, it was consistent and it was really well made, really well designed stuff, but affordable if you needed it to be. And the fashion shows weren't, weren't bad either. That was a lot of fun partying that way. You know, it was just cool. But anyway, all that led to Jabber ultimately, uh, which we'll talk about. That's my second plug. That was it Two plugs. Yeah, yeah, two two plugs. <laughs> are you kind of giving me a nudge? Like, when are we going to talk about Jamber? No, I, just, I feel like my entire life has led to this moment. Mm -hmm. That's more what it is. So I'm trying not to get ahead of myself in the sense that all these stories tied to, tie to Jamber. No, no, so it's, it's great. And I'm sure some people out there ha have heard about Jamber. Um, and so, and they're, they're probably really interested in the backstory, how, how you got to here. Because, I mean, yeah. everything, you know, um, whatever point you are in your life, Everything that happened in the past has led up to that. 100%. 100%. I just think it's really well said. What's different about Jamber is that the light went off. On. On. Okay. On. You know, um, it has a way of making everything else in my life make sense. Mm -hmm. And I haven't had that type of euphoria before at a job or creating a company. That's what's different.
Yeah, and that's um, that's Jamber with two M's, right? Yeah, J A M M B E R. Well, well, let's yeah. first talk about the name. How did you come up with that name? Well, at this point in time, so now when we start Jamber, uh, I've now officially been an entrepreneur and out of startups for I think fifteen years. So I'm forty now. I turn forty in two weeks. Um, Happy birthday! Thanks, brother. Yeah, man. Early April. Feel free to send me high fives on Twitter. Uh, but um, it's it's going to be a big one for all. But I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years, and I'm getting a little better at the balance between art and science, just to anything. So with Jamber, everything about it is a mixture of both art and science, and the name's one example. Um, the art part was we just came up with a bunch of random names that sounded music-ish, um, that we kind of liked, but science-wise, we knew some things about brands at this point. We knew that a lot of the strongest brands are made of words, like Kodak, Xerox, or derived words like Coca-Cola, right? Um, or names like McDonald's. So it had to be a word that didn't really mean anything to anyone yet, because we were going to add the meaning to it, like a blank canvas. It had to be a word that didn't have any adverse meanings in other countries, as well. There's some, some really cool case studies out there about that. Um, there's one company that named their truck something that sounded great in English but meant demon in, in, in Mexico, <laughs> uh -huh. which is one of their largest markets, you know. Um, and it had to be music sounding ish, but expand other things. So, various, a checklist of probably 25 things named that it had to have, not the least of which a dot com available, which is really why there's two M's in the name in the first place. Um, and a, it had to be trademarkable too. So, art and science there yeah cool that's yeah. that's very um uh very well thought out very thorough um, yeah very, very <laughs> thorough um i think i think something and i've talked to other um folks i think one of the things you mentioned which which when i talk to folks um they tell me when i ask about name is is the dot com available that's the biggest yes. that is the number yeah. one you know, well, we had a few different ideas and that, that dot com was available. Right. And for folks out there listening, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience with any of your startups. Yeah. If you're thinking about a particular name, let's say you have a short list and you're like, hey, the top of your short list is, I'm going to make something, Jamber with two M's. If that's what you're number one, don't go to one of these domain websites plug it in, see that it's available and say, okay, cool. It's available. Like maybe when I'm ready, I'll get it. And then walk away. Yeah. Buy it. Because I think, I don't know what happens, but I think there are like bots or something that can detect when you're, when you're testing a name. It feels that way, right? Yeah. Cause, cause, cause I've checked names before, like random names. I've checked it and like, I've checked it the next day and it's gone. Gone. Yeah. Cause, yeah. cause what they'll do is I, I think this is my just theory this is, now. This is my hypothesis. Theorist right here. Yeah. But my conspiracy theory well, is legit. that, is that these, these resellers that, that for example, sit they sit on names. I don't even think it's really legal or, or legit, but they, they, they'll buy names that they think someone might want to buy at some point. That's they'll, right. They'll sit, they'll sit on it. And then when you come knocking. Yeah, the squatters. Yeah, it's, yeah, the squatters. When you come knocking, you know, a domain that you could originally got for $12 a year is now you have to pay. $500. $500. $5,000. Yeah, yep, yeah. it happened with, um, so my, my rap name, I go by Shadower, S-H-A. D O W E R. Yeah. And so I remember when I was looking into the domain for that, and because I'm thinking, oh, I mean, this isn't, this is like not even a thing. This is not even a real word. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, so, well, I guess kind of it is like if you're, if you're like 
shadowing someone like around like like yeah, I, yeah, so exactly. w- when i used to wait tables like my first day i had to shadow the yeah, person um yeah, that's yeah, not where my yeah. name came from but anyway but yeah so i checked shadower.com it was um the domain wasn't available but someone was squatting on it and they wanted five grand and, and, and i i had the money at the time but it was it was just it was kind of stupid. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, I was just like, yeah. it, it, I mean, I could use that, that for stupid. something else. That's you know what I mean? That's a stupid amount of money to spend on domain name. It's a stupid amount of money. Well, I so, could buy shadowermusic.com. And then I bought shadowermusic.com. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So because, and it, and it helped brand wise, I think, because I could just do all of my, like when I was, when a new social media platform would come out, I would yeah. check Shadower. Most of the time, Shadower was gone. Right. Shadower Music was always available. Yeah. So yeah, so it just, it just kind of, it made sense, and and yeah. so I went ahead and did that. And it's a frustrating process. I think I think the other part of the discipline in a business is one of the reasons I read a lot, and one of the reasons I read a lot, especially about business, is because almost every mistake you're going to make has already been made, and it's like having a bunch of mentors. I used to pretend that I read a book from Michael Dell, who started Dell Computers, and I read the guy the book uh, "Put Your Heart Into It" from uh, Howard Schultz, who started you know well really grew Starbucks. And I used to pretend sitting at Starbucks that I was having a conversation with these mentors and sit with my coffee and pretend they were speaking to my life by reading their book as, as a mentoree. So in my mind, I've had coffee with Bill Gates. I've had coffee with, uh, you know, uh, Howard Schultz, Michael Dell, Einstein. Uh, I've had coffee with some amazing world changers in that way. But I say that to say, it teaches you not to take yourself so seriously too, which is really important because you can get in the way of your own business. And Jamber, we had a short list, like you said, we had six names we ended up liking that kind of passed the other criteria. But then instead of just picking ourselves, me and my co-founder at the time, we print them off on a piece of paper and we asked everybody what they thought. And he and I had our favorites, but after we asked probably, I'm going to, no exaggeration, 100, 200 people, just everyone we met, we had, hey, which one of these do you like? Just snap judgment. Like, well, what is the company about? Well, it doesn't matter. Which one do you like? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Jamber rose to the top of, of that list. And now it's a word being spoken all over the world, you know, which is fascinating how that works out. But if we would have really put our ego into it and said, okay, no, it's this one. Well, I don't know if we would have gotten the same kind of thing. You know? So mm-hmm. that's why the science part, art is really, really important as an entrepreneur. Uh, our heart and to each their own, everybody's different. If you find a brand you know and you're willing to pay five grand for it, then just do it. You know what I mean? No apologies, no excuses, but kind of first things first, just know why you're doing it. Are you doing it because you believe it's best for the business or are you doing it because it's just what you want? <laughs> There's a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's the mentors. Yeah. So that brings a full circle to your question. Y- yeah. No, 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 no. I like it. I like it. Let's talk about Jamber a little bit in terms of what you guys actually do because um, people are probably curious at this point. Um, yeah, or, my are they subjects? They might already be Googling it while they're driving down the street. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Yeah. No, no Googling and driving unless you're the passenger. Yeah. Unless you're the passenger <laughs> or, or you're pulled over at a safe place. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah. T- tell Check me about Jamber. Music.com as well. Right? Y- yeah, exactly. I need to get that website live. Um, <laughs> oh, see, see, now I have to get the website live <laughs> by, the to, time yeah. I, by the time I release this podcast. <laughs> see, yeah, um, there you go. Yeah. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I'll get the site yeah. live now. <laughs> um, yeah. So, okay. So go ahead and um, tell me about, um, tell me about Jamber. Well, after the, the the whole fashion thing, the, the only reason why I ever got any traction doing fashion was because there are these websites and 
not to plug it, but I think it's important. There was one called modelmayhem.com. I haven't been on there in a while. I've heard that it's changed, but for me personally, it was a free website. It was kind of like a job board and profile pages for models, fashion designers, photographers, and that community is one of the reasons why I even started. I couldn't draw. I couldn't sew. I couldn't. I just had these ideas. And what I first wanted to do is after I sold my you know, uh, company, had a little bit of money, I wanted to just create a new store. It was very pragmatic for me as an entrepreneur. I'm like, this Victoria's Secret. What else is there? That was my, that was it. That's what, that's all it was. And I did a lot of research as entrepreneurs do and realized that there was a, was a huge market and we can make some money in the space. But I wanted to be in a mall. I basically wanted to get feed over traffic. People that were going to Victoria's Secret were like, hey, what is this other company? It was called Mark Wayne Intimates. What's Mark Wayne Intimates? And why is it different? It sounds kind of sexy. Thanks, I, li- I like that. That's that Mark Wayne Intimates. <laughs> yeah. And is this, is this uh, just women's wear? Or? At the time, just women's wear. But it, okay. uh, it became Mark Wayne Fashions. And I did cottons, activewear, like button-ups and jeans and uh, uh, active wear. It was, it was just fun. It, it, it expanded beyond just women's intimate apparel. We made men's, men's pajamas, but we didn't sell that stuff really. Mm-hmm. We, we sold mostly the women's stuff. Um, but we had, you know, right when I was about to sign a lease on the mall, the recession hit. I was 708. Oh, yeah. And the traffic in the malls plummeted. You, you had mm-hmm. major brands, including Victoria's Secret, uh, just struggling with foot traffic. And my whole business model was dependent upon getting flow over traffic from these other stores. So mm-hmm. obviously that was not going to work. Um, so when I started to kind of burn the business plan and throw it away, my friends who knew about the idea were like, well, Marcus, why don't you just, you know, just be a designer instead? I'm like, I, I can't design. What do you mean? I can't draw. I can't sew. I'm not going to make a bra. Like, what are you talking about? Like, no, totally. Just try it. Just try it. And. I had nothing else going on, and this is how life works, right? It's usually our friends that just kind of drop that little seed of what if in our mm-hmm. minds. Uh, yep. And also, don't talk yourself out of something, you know? And securities are so fast to rob us of something new. And that almost happened to me, which had it did, maybe there'd be no jamber because it directly led to jamber. But fast forward, kind of the short version of the story is I was okay at Photoshop. So... I took some pictures on the internet of really great catalogs that I liked and used Photoshop to tweak those designs. And then I started going to people and say, hey, can you make this? First, I showed potential customers, like, do you like this design? They're like, oh, we love it. Wow, that's amazing. I'm like, oh, wait, there's something here. A little more encouragement, a little more what if, right? And next thing you know, we're in 150 boutiques all over the country and doing fashion shows everywhere. Um, and I get a phone call one day that said, Hey, uh, you don't know me. My name is Bronson Del Rio. Uh, I'm shooting a music video for Pitbull and Baby Bash. Our designer dropped out last minute. Would you guys be our designer? And how did they find you? The exact same site where I got started. So Model Mayhem, um, which again, I'm not endorsing. I've been on it in a while, but for me, it, it, uh, it was a huge impact. So at this point in time, I've got models. I'm casting out everywhere. I'm working with some of the best photographers in the world because Model Mayhem had this kind of community concept called TFP, which is trade for print, which is pretty common in the fashion industry. It just says, hey, if you put out a really cool idea and I like your concept because we're creatives, I'll do it for free with you. I don't want to spend any money to do it, but I'll do it for free with you. And we just all trade the prints. So if I can get a really good photographer, that's how I would recruit a really great model. 
because that model wants to work with that photographer, right? Same vice versa. If I had a really strong model, I could find a photographer, a really great designer. And most of my initial catalogs were designed and built that way for no money at all, which where else can you do that? And uh, as you'll see, that it comes full circle. So this guy, at this point in time, we have some really awesome designs. I've got some junior designers that are badass. And he sees our stuff. Their designer drops out, sends me a picture of the model. said, can you design a piece for this model within three days? Like, done. So I get off the phone. We're dancing around like little schoolgirls in our design office. Fly down. And sure enough, I'm there styling the video, designing the video for Pitbull and Baby Bash. And Corpus Christi, text, I believe it was. And it just kind of took off from there. I started doing music videos for a lot of different people. And people started using my designs in other in other music videos. And one day I get a phone call. Here's how it works. Serendipity. One domino falls. Look, opportunity means preparation. And this guy calls me up and says, hey, we're starting a girl band for a, a top record label in the world. I heard you do fashion and music. Will you come help us design a concept for this girl band? I'm like, yeah, man, how hard can it be to put together a girl band? I'm in. And as I say all the time, it was the hardest I'm cussing right now. You guys can't hear yeah, me, but yeah, it's the yeah, hardest. He's blanking his own. Blanking my own beep, 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 beep <laughs> thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, and for reasons to, to talk about at a different time. But I was frustrated because I just, here I am, a guy who's never designed fashion in my life. I have this community around me that helps my dreams come true. I'm in music. I'm in Chicago, one of the largest cities in the world at this point in time. And I can't find, I can't put together a girl band because there's nowhere to go. That's when I wanted to create the model mayhem for music, which was the first version of Jamber. So Jamber was initially the LinkedIn for music industry, and it has since evolved into just this amazing kind of workflow tool to help labels, film studios, Broadway, help them kind of get everyone on the same page, get all the paperwork stuff out of the way faster so people can get paid and get these experiences into the world that we can enjoy. When did you first launch Jamber, the original social network? It's kind of a story within a story, and I'm, I, you know, uh, definitely want to be respectful of everyone's ears. Cause I'm, I don't want to be <laughs> overly long-winded, but it's what I'm really hoping is that people get the principles out of these stories because I think that there's principles or wisdom we all can share with each other. I had a consulting company at this point in time, in addition to Mark Wayne. So uh, now I think I'm a good entrepreneur. I have two businesses running at the same time because I can, and. Um, I didn't like the economics of the fashion world. That's why I got out of it. It's really capital intensive, which is a way of saying it's expensive to do. On top of that, when I, I still kind of want to be a billionaire in the back of my mind. And when I looked at... With a B. With, with a B, mm-hmm. yeah. Like Bruno Mars was singing that song to me at that point in time, you know, want to be a billionaire, right? Like all these mm-hmm. different things. So I couldn't shake it. And when you look at historically how long it takes from zero to billion, fashion companies are around 15 to 20 years if they've been making that long technology companies within five and that's what kind of got me back into technology but i hated it we had a consulting company my buddy and i were just kind of dragging ourselves to work every day and finally one day i'm like man i can't do this anymore and he goes oh thank god me either so that was april 2013 and he's like well what else you got man what other ideas do you have and I kind of pulled out my notebook portfolio. We had like a tablet for kids based on Android. We had um, uh, water treatment things. We had bridges that would produce electricity. Uh, we had all just a bunch of ideas that had come on my mind. Um, not necessarily novel ideas. These all exist in some way, but I thought we could brand them differently. Everything I just said exists in some form already. We just thought we could do it differently and better. And then I had this one called Artist Frenzy. Get it? Model Mayhem. Artist Frenzy. 
Horrible name. <laughs> Horrible name. But it was just a code name, so don't judge me. Uh, and he goes, well, what's that? And whatever idea we did had to have, again, a checklist. Had to be something we were really excited about being a part of. Had to change lives for the better. Had to have residual income because our consulting company didn't. It was weird. Punching a clock. It had to be something that we were making money in our sleep. It had to have the potential to be a billion-dollar company, and it had to be able to change the world. And when we looked at that checklist, Jamber had all those things, then called Artist Frenzy. So we literally kind of quit our job on the spot. We just told our employees, like, you guys just run it from here. We're going to go build this thing. And we gained a lot of weight off of pizzas and martinis in doing so, put a business plan together, and I started coding, and we launched it in August 2013. Uh, fast forward, and we had a bunch of people join it, but we realized, you know what? It is kind of like a model mayhem for artists, but we're not really helping them move their careers forward. They're just all talking, getting together, but they don't know enough about the music industry to really make a dent in their careers, right? So yeah, we're doing another song, and you're a great drummer, but how do we make money in the music industry? You know, like, how do I register my songs, copyright my songs? There was no clear path to becoming more and more professional. Uh, you and I were talking earlier about, you know, your music and just how we grow as artists, right? And it's one thing when we're just putting on a show. It's a different thing when we we got to sell an album <laughs> or go on tour. It's harder to do. So how do you do that? Who teaches you how to do that? And the, sometimes the people that know how to do that are shady about it. <laughs> so who do you trust, yeah. you know? Um, so that's why we kind of changed from that to what Chamber is now, uh, which is really, like I said, a, a workful tool for creatives. Um, and we're going to evolve it over time. So right now it's mostly for professionals. So it's for major labels and major film studios and those kind of different things. But I give you my word, it will continue to evolve to be usable by anyone out there uh, in a way you can trust, get your music done quicker and get paid faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the pivot. Yeah. Because you were saying that you started out sort of as a, as the LinkedIn for, for musicians and for the music community, right. um, labels, everything. And, and now you've pivoted to, to slightly different product. And I think this is really important because uh, I've seen um, and heard with a lot, of, a lot of very successful startups yeah. that sometimes you have to adapt. Sometimes you have to be open to um, what what the real need is, what the right. real, what, what the biggest problem is that you can be solving that might be yeah. close to what you're doing, but yeah. maybe not the exact same thing. And so one example I can think of, and I know you're a gamer, so Twitch, yeah. twitch.com. Yeah. I th so I think they originally started out just like live streaming. W weren't they live streaming like a, live streaming a, a dude's or like life was, or something? It was something like, it was, I remember it was like streaming content or something like that. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. but it, but it was totally not focused on gaming. And I think it was a struggling startup for a few years. A while. They, they, yeah. they really weren't doing much. And then at, at some point, you know, they realized that the gaming community was really strong within their platform. I think a lot of it was they saw a little bit of data, but a lot of it was a gut thing. Yeah. And they took it down and they did a rebrand and, and they, yeah, relaunched. And I think within a couple of years, sold it for, I think, close to a billion dollars. I, I think it was like 980, something like that. Yeah. yeah Who's yeah. counting? So, <laughs> so let's talk about that that pivot, and I think this is an important lesson for entrepreneurs. Well, first of all, I think this is again where business porn is so dangerous. You know, I think that there's a belief system out there that you should figure it out out of the gate, and your business plan 
you do a business plan pro or whatever people are using these days and you just figure it out and you're so smart and it's good. But reality, everyone pivots and no matter how old your company is, you have to continue to pivot because your customers will change. If you solve one problem, that means they want you to solve the next problem. Uh, if you solve that problem, they want you to solve the next problem. So you're constantly evolving. And if you're not, you're, you're, you're dead. You know? So the aspect of that is you have to pivot. You have to adjust. And in Jamper's case, what we realized is the Jamper we were working with wasn't really adding as much value as the industry needed us to add. It was adding some value for people. Yeah, for me, I'm me, Marcus, as an example, I sing pretty well, uh, despite what you heard earlier, but I'm not a great drummer. I'm not a great guitar player. So that social network was the LinkedIn for music industry sounds awesome for me. I need that. But it's not where the impact was. And if we could take a qu one more quick break, I'll come back and explain why that is. Sure, no problem. All right, we're back. We just took another quick break. Go ahead and just tell folks what is Jamber doing now? What what problem are you guys solving in the music industry? Well, you touched on the pivot. And uh, for us, we were working on Jamber first in Chicago, uh, downtown Chicago at this, it's called a co-working space. But it's like, uh, imagine a bunch of desks in a really cool space where startups can have like a desk or sit at a table. And, you know, you pay a small monthly fee to be there. It's called 1871 Chicago, and it's huge. Uh, 1871. Uh, it's massive. Yeah, so we were there pretty active in the community. We were there every day working on this business. And one day they said, hey, there's a program in Nashville that's accepting music technology companies. And they give you an investment. And they put you through this kind of 14-week uh, boot camp to really help your business get ready. They're called accelerators. And so we applied, got accepted. Which, which we Which accelerator were you in? Uh, it's called Project Music, uh, okay. based in Nashville. Uh, Thanks for asking, projectmusic.com, actually. Um, and we applied, and we got in. We're like, oh, man, like, what do we do now? Like, we have to move to Nashville. What are we going to do? Mm -hmm. uh, but it turned out to be the best thing for Jamber um, because we were able to see behind the scenes. And I'll tell you one of the moments that lets what we're doing now because you'll, you'll understand why we're doing it. So they made us research all these customers, do customer interviews across the board just to find out if people cared about our LinkedIn problem we're still solving, which we knew because we're, and I'm, you know, we're entrepreneurs. We got to figure it out. And we've already done mm -hmm. this before. And, but we still went through the process, albeit begrudgingly. Um, and in one of those meetings, I, there was this area uh, that was full of these paychecks that for musicians and all these paychecks were sitting there. And we're like, well, why are these paychecks just sitting here? Well, they were all returned to sender. These were checks that went out to people, a guitar player, a drummer. for. Because um, what happens is when you're working on an album or a song, you're paying those uh, musicians to be there like on an hourly basis, like a job. This is their full-time job and, and for many of these guys. And their paychecks came back. Like, that seemed like, we're like, why? Like, there's probably a couple million dollars sitting here in paychecks. I mean, someone's not getting their and Many of the musicians I know, they're not making crazy amounts of money. You know, they're making just enough to live a, a modest living. And when we found out the reason why those paychecks were just sitting there is because it took too long to get to them. They had moved their The name was wrong. Uh, the account uh, that came off when it came from the wrong company. There were like a, a bunch of different reasons why these checks were sitting there. So this isn't the kind of money that someone's hiding in a basement somewhere like, no, don't give the musicians their money. This is money that 
they should have had that actually went out to them and came back. And we, my buddy and I just were really frustrated by that and emotionally moved by all that money just trapped there. And I remember we went to a taco place in Nashville called Bakersfield Tacos that was right underneath our apartment. And we didn't really say anything. We just kind of sat there. We ordered the, the uh, mole tacos that we always order. Mm-hmm. We ordered a shot of tequila each and still not a word other than to each other. Really, really heavy, really tense. And we did our shots of tequila. And we looked at each other like, you know, we have to pivot, right? Like, yeah, man, we have to pivot. We got to solve this problem. I think we can solve it. And we literally ate our tacos, had a lot more than a shot of tequila at that point in time, mm-hmm. and went back upstairs to our apartment and redid our entire business plan. At Project Music, they make you kind of, not make you, but you you practice telling about your business, which is called a pitch. You practice pitching kind of every week. And everyone knew our LinkedIn pitch because we'd done it at this point in time for 12 weeks. Now, by the, by the way, if you're going to pivot at an accelerator that's only 14 weeks long, try to figure it out faster than we did. Because we pivoted at week 12, and that's really hard to do. Ooh, two weeks left. <laughs> two weeks left. You know, we're like completely changing our business model. And I'll never forget, and it might be exaggerated in my imagination, but after we gave the pitch, all the musicians in the room kind of stood up and gave us applause, like standing ovation. And all the investors went, oh, my God, what has Marcus done? This is a horrible idea. (laughs) What's he doing? This This is not sexy like LinkedIn. This is accounting like QuickBooks. Nobody wants this business model. And lo and behold, Jabber is one of the sexiest companies now out of that company. So there's something to be said about staying the course and and knowing you're going to uh, path to customer. So but my buddy and I, again, been entrepreneurs, so we knew to trust the process. Like, if you work out, you know, working out isn't always fun for some people, but, you know, if you stick with it, it's, it's, it's going to feel good. You can't go play as much. You can't go eat as much. You can't go drink as much, but you get the reward of having a healthier, stronger body. And it's the same thing for being an entrepreneur or anything. But as an entrepreneur, you got to trust the process, which is why reading is so important. So you know what the process is. But, uh, we pivoted to this idea because we really, well, we found out the problem was really simple. Number one, there's a lot of paperwork involved when it comes to creating professional music. You have to fill out your tax forms. You got to fill out your government forms, like your things like I-9. Same things you do for a job even at McDonald's. You have to fill out paperwork, right? But as a musician, you have to do it with every company you're working with. It's, musicians aren't just working with one record label. They're usually working with dozens of record labels. So imagine that dozens of companies that need all the exact same paperwork and you're a creative who hates paperwork, right? You're not writing in, you know, Marcus Cobb, you're writing in Shadower as your name because your name is near and dear to you. I can't write a check to Shadower unless you've got a corporation. (laughs) True. Um, So this has happened before. I've actually had checks written to me, Shadower, and I like I can't oh, check this. Wow. Yeah, I'm like you guys have to you guys have to write this check to my record label. I can't cash this at the bank. Wow, yeah. are you serious? No, it's happened for shows. Mm-hmm. That's it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and so you have money. You've been waiting for that money too, right? And mm-hmm. you, you finally get it, and it's wrong. That was happening to forty percent of the people out there that we talked to. At least forty percent. It was taking them three months to two years to get paid if they ever got paid. And half the time when they were new in the space, they weren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. And that was like, wow, this is much bigger than we thought it was. Uh, so what if what if instead, what if we could automate the paperwork somehow? You know, like you fill it out one time maybe, and then all the information is the same. We just use that for people automatically. So it's right, and you just push from a button. That's where it started. And then we're like, well, 
they're always kind of like at sessions or going to someone's house. There's a, there's a date and a time, a place here in a studio. What if we can create this shared calendar where you can see all of that and a mobile app attached to it? So whether or not you and I are just impromptu, like right now we just write a song and say, yeah, we we're both there. Or if the studio is scheduling it, then we can take the information from that and use that to generate the paperwork. Next thing you know, now we're doing payments. And what if you pay them out directly? Why, why are you mailing them a check? Why is there no direct deposit in the music industry? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, it's because you don't have that kind of trust relationship, right? You're, you're reluctant to give them your social security number. You're going to give them your bank account information too. It's not going to happen. And that's where Jamber came from. It became this, first of all, the shared calendar where you can see everything that's going on for professional project, music project where we started. And then we generate all the paperwork. And you just submit it with the click of a button. That's the, the goal, the dream. And then now that's done, we can pay you out directly if you're being paid. Mm-hmm. Like, how awesome is that? You just walk up to a stage, do a show, check in, check out. They approve, deny, and you get paid right on the spot. It's my dream job. It's actually literally changing the world and putting money into people's pockets. You know, yeah. So that's what we do. That's great. And, and is that is that accelerator you mentioned? Is that the only accelerator you guys have been through? Only we've been through. There are other music accelerators now uh, around the world, that, but they Project Music was the first. Okay. And part of the reason why we were able to pivot was because we had access to the labels. We got to see behind the veil. To this day, I can still make a phone call and get into almost any label I want to around the world. And they didn't know who I was, but they knew the people that put this program together. And so as a favor to the program and because they believed what we and what the program was about, we had unprecedented access to pretty much anyone in the space. So even my investors right now, one of my investors started at Jack FM, which is a major radio brand. Another investor manages Darius Rucker and uh, Rascal Flats and Jason Aldean. One of my advisors has been an attorney for um, Kanye and uh, um, you know Rock Nation, Beyonce, and those kind of guys, Mariah Carey. Another one of my advisors and investors uh, handles probably good... 40% of the country music that comes out of Nashville, he touches and works with. I got introduced to Ashton Kutcher's fund a while ago with just a phone call. And I got introduced to NAS, NAS's investor fund because of the community here, right? These people don't know who Marcus Cobb is. <laughs> uh, but because the community is kind of rallied around us, that's why we're growing so fast, get so much traction. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. One more quick thing. You mentioned that you got to, uh, and, and this is why we're going to have to go pretty soon. Yeah. yeah. But, but, but this, uh, for good reasons, though. So. Yeah, for good reasons. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about this meeting or launch, this project that you have to get to that is um, happening tomorrow. We have the privilege of uh, pitching or kind of really demoing to Spotify tomorrow. I've, we've had some ongoing discussions with them and they've been really supportive of what we're doing. So tomorrow they're taking a closer look at what we're doing at Spotify. And, we're getting that done. Matter of fact, the, if you hear the creepy creaking, it's because my team's pulling me in there because we have a deadline tomorrow, but I'm having so much fun right now. We'll, we'll, uh-huh. we'll wind it down. Uh, but Spotify, uh, we're just doing demo with them tomorrow. Uh, we're Big Machine, which is a, a Taylor Swiss record label. They were the, really the first ones to tell us we had a good idea, and they've been standing by us ever since we started this. So we're finally able to show them the new, the new version of all this on Friday, which we're super excited about. The list goes on. I mean, we have, uh, I heard that Pandora is going to be using it to manage all their events around the country. Mm-hmm. We have uh, NBC Universal, which is uh, Universal Pictures. They want to use it to 
uh, essentially to schedule all their sessions for Pitch Perfect 3, the movie they're working on right now. And that's that's a really cool client list, you know, to have those kind of clients we're working on. So we have two huge demos just tomorrow. We have both Spotify and uh, Big, Machine. Uh, Big Machine. Thank mm -hmm. you. So after you and I are done right with this right here, I will be up all night eating pizza and talking with my team and making sure we get it done and that it's airtight for them. Mm. Man, I, I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, Sean, man. This is going to be a quick one. If someone's out there, they have an idea, they're thinking about starting something, um, but they're not sure where to start, what would your advice be? Well, the other people that have done it before you aren't any smarter than you. They're not any more talented than you are. They're just people. And if every strength is a weakness and every weakness is a strength, then it's really about perception. So the advice is don't talk yourself out of it. Try it anyway. You know, uh, I think it's Martin Luther King who said, if you, if you can't fly, jump. If you can't jump, run. If you can't run, walk. You can't walk, crawl, but always keep moving forward. And if it's a really small idea that you don't know where to start, just kind of move forward with it. Just do something with it. I've I've found, too, that it's sometimes better to show your raw ideas to strangers instead of your closest family and friends, <laughs> right? And what I've told people to do who are really shy uh, and, and can be insecure, which is totally fine, is to say, hey, uh, my friend has this idea. Can I show it to you, too? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but don't talk yourself out of it. Just do it. Um, research it. Read about it. Ask people. Because you're going to get so much information in, it, chances are you're right. If you see a problem, there are at least a thousand other people who see the same problem. So what do you want to do with it? You know, how far do you want to take it? That's my advice is start with something, keep moving forward. But most important, my most, if you guys are listening to me, you hear nothing else from this entire podcast here. Don't talk yourself out of it. You talk yourself into it. Don't give yourself the reasons why you can't do it. Give yourself the reasons why you should or how you can. If you do that, you will move forward. I promise you. Man, Marcus, you're such an inspiration. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah, I really appreciate you, man. All right, so if people want to learn more about your company, Jamber, where can they find you at online? Yeah, jamber.com. You guys know now that it's a .com. <laughs> two M's. Two M's, J-A-M-M-B-E-R.com. Uh, the team does a great job with social media, so we're at Jamber Music on Twitter. Um, all one word, like it sounds, J-A-M-M-B-E-R-M-U-S-I-C. Uh, Facebook, Instagram. Um, we have a hello at jamper.com email address. If you email that, address it to me. Uh, they'll make sure it gets to me. And uh, um, we're really, we're accessible here, especially if you're a musician in our cities in Chicago and in Nashville. We do two things. We have monthly uh, writer's rounds where we showcase emerging artists. And I, I typically try to invite A&R people to those real low key and managers and record labels and then we also do what's called um we sponsor an artist so for a few weeks to a few months we wrap our arms around an artist and we everything from making show introductions to uh telling you how to why your isrcs and iswcs are important to introducing you to labels that we know are looking for talent so um happy to help out and serve you guys any way we can in that way too mm -hmm. And do you tweet online personally, or do you have a website or any kind of? I tweet, any, yeah. I, yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of uh, bulk tweet. Like I, bulk I'll go, tweet. I'll binge go tweet, binge tweet. Yeah, uh -huh. I'll go radio silent for two weeks as we're building this business, uh, and then I'll do forty tweets in, you know, okay. in, in a weekend. Same thing with Instagram. It's but uh, I tweet 
Twitter's a great way to uh, get in touch with me. So follow me there. What's uh, what's your Twitter handle? Oh yeah, I didn't say that, did I? Yeah. <laughs> uh, at Jamber CEO is, is is my Twitter handle. So right. at two M's J A M M at J A M M B E R CEO on on Instagram. I actually know I'm Music Fashion Tech. So thanks for asking. At Music Fashion Tech, which is yeah, all one word, Music Fashion Tech, which is me. All right, cool. so. Uh, uh, yeah, and if you guys can find us, but just Google me, you know, Marcus Cobb. Thanks to Google, we're all pretty easy to find these days. So I'm on LinkedIn too. If you Google Marcus Cobb Jamber, I'll come up. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. All right, Marcus, well, I'll let you get back to changing the world. And yeah, man. I really too, appreciate brother. you taking the time. I love the way you, you know, you've curated the content for, for this podcast and you're speaking to people's lives. So I, I didn't know what to expect. I knew about you and what you're working on here, but this has been a rich experience for me. So thanks a lot for having me. In lieu of advertising, I'd like to make a call to action. If you are moved by Marcus's story and wonder how you could help a young person growing up in difficult circumstances, I would highly encourage you to get involved in mentoring. It only requires a few hours a month and can have a huge impact on a child's life. If you'd like to get involved, you can check out Big Brothers Big Sisters, which is a national organization that connects mentors with at-risk youth. Or... Just search for a reputable organization in your local community. And if you live in a really, really small town, maybe try connecting with a local public school. Also, this is the final episode of season one. Thank you so much for listening. And if you're just tuning in, we have over a dozen other interviews from this season you can check out. We plan on releasing episodes to season two starting this fall in 2018. And lastly, I'd like to dedicate this first season of my podcast to the memory of my good friend and brother, DJ Gibson. He was the guy I mentioned in this episode that had the trailer with his friends when he was a teenager. He was also the first person I told about my podcast when it was just an idea. He has one of the most colorful stories of anyone I've ever met and was originally scheduled to be interviewed in this first season. I guess I'll have to figure out another way to tell your story although I know you're the master storyteller. I love you, you'll always be my brother, and you will never be forgotten.